Welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I don't really like mushrooms very much. <laughs> Disagree, and uh, and this will come back later when we play Smoochberry Kill. I'm Valerie Hoagland, and not a lot of people know this about me, but I used to be one of Mud's women. Oh, <laughs> all right. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, there were four of us in that first episode, and uh, I just got edited out. Together, we run a speakeasy in the Jeffries tubes. And today we're talking about the fifth episode, Choose Your Pain. The episode was written by Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts and Kemp Powers. And it was directed by Lee Rose. And um, shout out to Kemp Powers for having a killer name. Yeah, that's an amazing name. <laughs> so Valerie, this was, I think, hands down my favorite episode so far. Oh, wow. Okay, go on. I think I responded very positively to some of the themes that are in this episode. And one of the things that I really respond to as a, as a reader or as a viewer is when a writer challenges me to understand a little bit of what's going on in the text. And I have many questions here. I'm left with questions to which I don't really know the answer. And so I'm very excited to, to get to hear what you have to say about them. Man, okay, yeah. I did not have the same reaction. In fact, I didn't feel like it was one of the more complex episodes, so I'm excited for maybe your questions to prove me wrong. I think one of the things I enjoyed about this episode is that it focused less on Burnham. I did enjoy that. I, I would agree. And Rain Wilson was an excellent choice for Harry Mudd, and Harry Mudd is a fun character, and I think they did a great job with him. All right, well, should we just jump into it? Yeah, I guess we should. All right, let's get going. The Discovery is distorted, sort of blurry at the edges, as we move through its empty corridors to the Spore Lab, where Michael Burnham is manning the Spore Drive, and also standing in the navigation chamber. As the Burnham scream, we realize that this is just a dream, and the real Burnham wakes up in her quarters to the sound of Tilly snoring. In the next scene, Burnham is in the sick bay, talking to Dr. Colbert, and she's there about a very serious matter, but my immediate thought to this switch from Tilly's snoring to Burnham going to see the doctor was that she was there to complain about Tilly's snoring. Yeah, that's that's weird. That's not what I read at all. I think it was, you know, it was just like, ha ha, Tilly's funny, you know? Yeah, I'm charmed. I am charmed by Tilly's snoring. But I really thought like the snoring didn't, it just seemed like it was supposed to be more significant than it actually was. But it's just one of the one of the many charming details uh, that we get uh, with Tilly. You just want everything to have meaning. And, <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> and narrative purpose. Alas, snoring does not help you in that arena. No, the snoring has no narrative purpose, uh, at least not in this episode. And in fact, Burnham is here uh, because she really wants to talk to Dr. Colber about the toll that the spore drive jumps are taking on the tardigrade. And he doesn't really seem to care right now. Yes, right now he seems too busy to, to care about this. So, but, but I'll say, so, and this is going to be true for this whole teaser, that you know, right up front in this first whole section, they were like, hey, everything that you maybe guessed or thought about or were worried we wouldn't address, we're going to address it right off the bat. And they've been pretty good about that, that when they leave problematic cliffhangers, they, they come back to them and they give them space. And they're doing that here with the whole question of, hey, is it cool to torture this thing? That's going to be the the central question of of this episode. And this little scene here with the doctor is just to let us know here in the teaser, as you say, Valerie, that they are going to to address that. It doesn't serve any particular narrative function right now. 
So in the in the next scene within the teaser, Lorca meets with the brass, and it's been three weeks since the last episode, and we get a list here of what Discovery's been up to since the adventure at Corvan 2. And the first item on the list is that they've broken the Klingon supply line at Benzar. So I don't know if you picked this up, Valerie, but Benzar is the home of, of Benzites. And Benzites are the species of blue humanoids who, who need that, that breathing apparatus. Uh, the most famous one of these that we see in Star Trek is in the episode of TNG when Wesley is competing with a Benzite for entrance to the Academy in uh, uh, Coming right. of Age. Oh, yeah, that guy's so nice and smarter than Will Wheaton. He might have gotten into the Academy, but he can't. What is it Wesley could do? Weirdly travel through space and time? Right? I think this reference here is is a hint that they're they're leaving it open for Will Wheaton to make a guest appearance as a an aged and time traveling Wesley Crusher. Oh I'm calling oh it. Oh my god, they totally could. <laughs> I'm totally calling it right could. here. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah. so, well, I don't actually think that the mention of Benzar has any particular narrative purpose here or is a hint for things to come necessarily. But the second item on the list is is. Lorca explains here that they've routed an attack through the Ophiacus system, and this is a great little tease here, Valerie. The Ophiacus system is the place where we meet Harry Mudd in TOS in the episode Mudd's Women. Oh, amazing. You know, I hadn't picked that up. Gosh, they're so good at stuff. I giggled a little bit, I think, when, when he said Ophiacus system, because, it, you know, it was even though I was trying very hard to not know anything about Discovery coming in, uh, you would have ha- really literally had to have been not ever on the Internet to not know that Rain Wilson had been cast as Harry Mudd. And so I immediately said, oh, this is the episode we're going to get Harry Mudd. Way to catch that. I hadn't seen uh, Mudd's women actually in a little bit. And by that, I mean like a month um, so, um, I hadn't remembered the name of the system, but I Mud is very fresh in my mind. The second Harry Mud episode, which I think is the better Harry Mud episode. True to Harry Mud fashion, he will return later in the podcast. Well, back to the meeting. Starfleet is trying to find more tardigrades so they can duplicate the spore drive. But for now, Admiral Cornwell orders Discovery to stop using the drive. And this upsets Lorca because, of course, he wants to be out there fighting. It was a good scene. It was a good scene. We learned about our characters. It was interesting. It made me really sad for the tardigrades not yet found. And I hope they don't find any. And I think that given where this episode goes, we're, we're going to move past the tardigrade as a reoccurring character creature. But I mean, it was Starfleet made the right call. I think this seemed kind of tropey to me that Lorca is the, the soldier who just wants to be out fighting even when that's not actually the right thing to, to do. I think Lorca is a smarter person than that. I, I think Lorca also would want to be sparing the, the drive, not risking the drive when it's the only one that they've got. And the whole point is to be making more of them. Now, this is where I think we're going to get into a lot of we've already gotten into some some problems and we're going to probably keep having this argument. And I think it's worth having, or at least I think it's fun. You do self-identify a little bit with Lorca, right? It's just because he's so handsome. But I think that I don't think it's inconsistent with Lorca's character. He's kind of obsessed with warmongering and... It makes sense to me that this would be difficult for him and he would be a little bit, I don't know, is petulant the right word for this? <laughs> I think petulant is the right word for this. And I, th- I think you're actually right, Valerie. And in fact, we're going to get 
we're going to get some more about Lorca in this episode. This episode is kind of the Lorca's backstory episode. And so I think we're going to see, we're going to finally see some of the baggage that he's carrying around with him, much like we understand Burnham's baggage. And I think you're right. I think thinking about what we know, what we come to discover at the end of this episode, I think if that can inform the reading of this scene, then I think you are right. I think my complaint is really more about the specifics of the dialogue felt tropey to me. That was very present in this episode. There was a lot of explainy tropey dialogue. Okay, all right. Well, let's move on. In our next scene, uh, we're in the galley where Tilly and Burnham are having lunch. Uh, Burnham is out of sorts, but Tilly loves feeling feelings. Oh gosh, this scene, this 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 hit hard. I don't love feeling feelings, <laughs> and Tilly's just so so right there with it. But she's she's charming and she's consistent to her character, and I enjoy that that she's there and she's getting some more time. Um, so, and she's, you know, she's not wrong. <laughs> People who say feelings should be felt are, they're not wrong. Can't believe I just said that on air. I'll, I can edit that out for you. <laughs> no one, will, no one will ever have to know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's get to the next scene here. Uh, in the aftermath of the meeting with the Admiralty, Lorca is hanging out in the conference room alone and in the dark, and he's injecting something into his eyes. This is something that always creeps me out. I have an eye thing. I couldn't watch. There's a great line I think that we're going to get here or a a little nugget that we're going to get here that comes back later in the episode that explains his light um, sensitivity that I actually thought was really well done and and beautiful. Yes, right. What happens immediately next is that Admiral Cornwell enters the room and she turns on the lights uh, and Lorca responds uh, negatively to this uh, with a bunch of yelling. And she she gives it right back to him. She says, I think the line that you're thinking of here, Valerie, is get your damn eyes fixed. Yeah, yeah. And that's when we as an audience are like, wait, this can be fixed. Right. He's choosing not to have his eyes fixed. And uh, there's there are a couple things going on here. One of one thing, of course, is that this bit with the eyes is is this is Chekhov's eye problem here. Uh, you know, it's going to come back uh, in the third act. And so it's letting us know that this is this is a, a problem, that this is a weakness, a flaw that Lurka has. This also seemed to me to be something of a of a an allusion here to the Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. And that's not going to be the last time that we get an allusion to Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan in this episode. But in that film, we learn that Kirk has something wrong with his eyes as well, which is to say that he needs reading glasses because he's allergic to Retinox 5, which is the medical treatment that they give people to make their eyes better so that they don't have to use reading glasses. And so I thought they were really drawing a parallel here to the way that that metaphor is deployed in Star Trek two is for Kirk's aging and his inability to deal with it. But here using uh, weak eyes, damaged eyes uh, and the not receiving the medical treatment to repair them is being deployed uh, as a, as a different type of metaphor, a different type of, uh, of character point. I'm excited to see this come back. I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this as it as it goes through. I don't think Lorca is struggling with with his age, but he is struggling with something. And there's another line in this scene which which really excited me for the rest of the episode when he when the admiral says to him, you know, we don't want to give people another reason to judge you. And at first, 
I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. Lorca's very, he's highly judgeable. Sure. Um, like, this is, you know, this is a non-starter. But, but I was like, ah, they're hinting at something. We're going to learn, we're going to learn some more about Lorca. We're going to get some Lorca backstory. Yeah, that was a great little tease. I really jumped on that line as, as well. Uh, judging in particular is actually something of a theme here in the teaser and perhaps in the episode. This scene uh, here, this little conversation between Lorca and Admiral Cornwell, the, the question of judging and of justice comes up because the Admiral wants Lorca to give up Burnham to release her so that she can go serve her prison sentence. And she says here, Valerie, something that's that we talked about last week or the week before is that Burnham is viewed by many, justifiably or not, as the cause of the war. So we get a little uh, explanation here that, that the writers definitely don't think she caused the war, but that this is something about the way people are perceiving her. Yeah, I was very appreciative for that. And when I mentioned earlier that I thought that these episodes do a very good job of usually right when we get into the next one, wrapping up some some loose ends from previous episodes. This was an instance of that. This is a big question that we had. It was confusing to us why people were viewing her this way. And I really appreciated uh, knowing that, you know, those highest in command understand that that's that's not what happened. Yeah, and that's not the only thing that we've talked about that gets mentioned here in this conversation. Lorca explains that when he accepted this command, he was given the fullest latitude to fight the war as he sees fit. And then he asks the Admiral if she's uncomfortable with the power that he's been given. And I have to think that this means this has something to do with Section 31, right? I don't know. I'm moving a little bit away from Section 31. I didn't feel like it was very present in this episode. We still have one more scene left here in the teaser, and we should probably uh, get to that. After this conversation, Lorca takes a shuttle back to Discovery, but en route, he and his pilot are captured by Klingons. And Lorca does not go down without a fight. Uh, The pilot dies. Lorca is, uh, I think, hit pretty hard. And at the very end, we learn that these Klingons know who Lorca is definitely purposeful and i don't know if there's anything here but i thought it was a pretty beautiful shot of Lorca sitting on this shuttle in the dark that can be you know juxtaposed with burnham's arrival on discovery and the sitting kind of alone on that shuttle even though there were other prisoners there i don't know i just thought visually it, it was a interesting reminder of kind of seeing him in a similar physical position and physical space. Yeah, that's a that's a great catch, Valerie. I mean, this whole episode is really exploring Lorca and showing how similar he, in fact, is to Burnham in a lot of ways. And this will become a big thing, but gosh, so many people die in this episode, and there's our first one, shuttle pilot. Yeah, it's 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 pretty brutal. We're going to see a lot of lot of death, a lot of brutal violence in this episode. In fact. It wasn't my favorite, but we'll get there when we get there. So we come back from the credits and we're on the bridge of the Discovery where Admiral Cornwell is making a hollow call to Saru to explain that Lorca was abducted and that he needs to get a rescue mission underway immediately. I, that's not how I would have recapped it. I would have said, so we're back on the bridge and we get more shots of impossibly handsome bridge guy who has yet to deliver a line. <laughs> I didn't even notice that he was there. <laughs> He's there. He's always there and he always gets screen time, but he never gets a line. I don't even think he gets a name. 
Like so we get some names for bridge officers in this scene, and he is not one of them. Oh man, poor guy. He must be some. He must be some like producer's really handsome nephew. <laughs> you know what? Oh, I hadn't thought about this, but I'm calling it. He's the O'Brien. He's going to be the one that like is in the most Star Trek episodes ever because he's just always in the background and he's not important enough for them to kill off or do anything with. But he's going to be like the actor credited with most, you know, Star Trek episodes. But okay, so more important things are happening over there on the holophone. Uh, yeah, and well, after the conver- after this conversation, you know, Saru, Saru accepts the mission, and at this point, Burnham comes to the bridge to tell Saru that the spore drive is hurting the tardigrade. But Saru cannot deal with that right now, and he orders her to let the matter go. Yeah, he's freaking out. Yeah, he really is, and that, that's a big uh, a big part of this episode. A big that's his character arc here is is the pressure of the pressure of command here in this real tense situation. This is an episode where I have to say he does not come out looking sympathetic, even even at the end. I think he's a little bit less of a sympathetic character for me, um, but I hope I hope that changes in future episodes. The next scene is is him alone in the ready room where he's talking to the computer and he, he wants the computer to help him be a better captain. And so he initiates a protocol by which the computer will evaluate his performance against that of Starfleet's best captains from today and yesterday. Yeah, we got a nice Jonathan Archer on that list and Chris Pike. And Georgiou, the other two of the five were not people we know. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. Some fun can be had on the internet by maybe Googling those other those other two people. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this before, but I went and I, I rewatched iMud after this episode aired last night, the second Harry Mud episode in the original series. And I was just struck... And this isn't particular to iMud. It's just something I saw in the original series as I was watching it, but I was just struck by how, you know, in the original series, we have Spock and his logic and his unemotional self. And, you know, on TNG, we have Data, who serves kind of the same, like, how to be a better human, somebody please explain this to me, function. And I wasn't expecting Saru to be that character, but he's definitely playing that role, at least in this scene. And what's interesting here, or one of the things that I found interesting here is that you know, he asks the computer what attributes these captains had in common or attributes that were mentioned most often in the write-ups for the medals that they received. And it's a pretty long list. You know, it includes things like courage and bravery and self-sacrifice, all things that we would associate with that. But uh, but also on that list and, and put last and in the chief place is compassion. Right. And that's going to be that's the kicker. Right. I think I was going to ask you this when we get to that scene uh, about what, you know, what was it that Saru failed to do on that list? My guess was compassion. And we can talk about that more when we talk about that scene. But um, but yeah, you picked up on the same thing that I did. This episode, as in Last Valor, we're doing quite a bit of saying, well, and we'll talk about this again when we uh, when we get the completion of this arc, which may not be the best radio, but is definitely definitely points to, I think, some real careful writing. Uh, and I, I'm, I've been really impressed with the way the writers are crafting these these character arcs. Although, again, I, you've, you've given so much great commentary this episode about tying things into the Star Trek universe. I feel like I'm just giving these one offs and I have another one. Where's the Tribble? Where'd it go? 
Oh man, you've got to keep track of your triple. <laughs> yeah, I know that, that that gets real serious, real fast. You cannot mess around. Uh, that's a great catch, Valerie. I'm sure that's going to be the exact plot of episode eleven. Uh, what's what happens next? Yeah, our next scene is Lorca arriving on board a Klingon prison vessel, and here, finally, Valerie, here is where we meet Rain Wilson playing the memorable Harry Mud. Harry Mud, and I, in the in the words of Captain Kirk, thief, swindler, conman, liar, and rogue, entrepreneur. I say, uh, that well, that's 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 Mud's definition, <laughs> entrepreneur. Uh, Kirk leaves that one out. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we've we have mentioned Mud uh, quite a bit already, Valerie, but we could do so now. I think maybe in a more focused way, just to let listeners who uh, for whom this is their first trek, we can let them know that yes, Harry Mud is a. a classic character, recurring character from the original series. He's in two episodes, both of which we've mentioned already, Mud's Women and I, Mud. Um, He's also in an episode of the animated series called Mud's Passion. Oh, (laughs) oh, I don't think I want anything to do with Mud's Passion. (laughs) In Mud's Women, we meet we meet Harry Mudd as a man who is bringing wives to bachelor minors in the Ophiuchus system that we heard about in the teaser of this episode. Uh, but there's more to it than that. He is. This is not just a, a an online bridal service that he's offering. Uh, these <laughs> he is giving these women some kind of drug that alters their appearance so that they look more physically attractive than they actually are, which raises all sorts of ethical issues and maybe also some issues about um, how our own culture and society views beauty and views women's roles, uh, or at least did in 1968. That's definitely something that comes up a lot with with mud and that makes him kind of, for lack of a better term, icky. But yeah, at the end of of Mud's Women, we we get this kind of like little funny interaction between Mud and Kirk, where Kirk's like, "Oh, we'll see what happens like at your trial. Do you want me to be a character with, witness for you?" And Mud's like, uh, "No, I don't. I don't think that's going to go super well for me." Um, so, but we we get this teaser at the end of that episode that what's going to happen to Mud? You know, he gets found out, he gets in trouble, he he's going to to go to trial and be convicted for his crimes. Yet season two comes and. Um, the the ship is taken over by a sexy German android. Um, I think might be the best way <laughs> to describe that particular character. He likes to go into rooms and press all the buttons, and somehow um, takes navigation offline um, and takes control of the ship and reroutes the Enterprise to a planet full of robots that we find out are controlled by Mud. And Mud has become the ruler of this planet um, and made like five hundred good-looking woman robots to serve his his every whim and tries to trap the Enterprise crew there with him. And they, they abandon him on that planet. But what's really interesting for, or what's really well done, I guess, which we see the Discovery writers continuing to just really tie everything in nicely with the canon, is that in, in I, Mud, we learn about Stella, Mud's, I guess ex-wife at this point in the discovery episode which takes place what can we say like 10 years before this second season episode um of the original series he he's he's in love with stella and he wants to get back to her but by the time we get to i mud stella is his least favorite person he's created an android replica of stella 
who he says nagged him ceaselessly and he and and she is the reason he went out into the galaxy farther and farther and farther to get away from her and he created this android to remind himself of how annoying she is and he turns the android on periodically and lets it nag him and then tells it to shut up and he gets immense satisfaction from, from getting the last word with this annoying stella from his past but when we see him here in discovery he that hasn't happened yet he's still very much in love with this this woman you know i always think of mud's women as being kind of the 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 most flagrant and complicatedly misogynistic of these mud episodes but actually you're right it's i it's i mud because it's just at the, the heart of this joke is uh how annoying wives are yeah and at the end uh kirk makes 500 stellas to uh, torture uh, mud with forever yeah and you know the whole women robots to serve his bidding uh, also uh, also a bit of a problem there but that's a lot on harry mud you know even if we don't like him he is a fun and and very memorable character from the original series to use your word glenn but he represents kind of the worst of humanity in a lot of ways he's very self-interested and i don't know glenn if you have a better term for him than like scummiest guy i think scummiest is actually a pretty good descriptor for harry mudd and we're gonna see it right away right here in this scene there's a third prisoner in the cell and he's in very bad condition and when some klingon guards enter and demand that mudd choose his pain mudd points to the prisoner who is then beaten and removed and Lorca, you know, wants to know what's going on here. And so Mud explains that choose your pain is a game that the Klingons play in order to keep the prisoners from bonding. And Lorca observes here that Mud doesn't have any bruises. He's conspicuously unbruised. And he expresses some disgust for Mud's clear refusal to take the beatings himself. But Mud, of course, explains that he he's not scum. He's not scummy. He's not the scummiest, but that he's a survivor just like Lorca. And that's our second tease about uh, that something is coming in Lorca's backstory. Yeah, and definitely consistent with, I mean, the lies one probably has to tell oneself to live the life that Mud does. You know, I'm sure he really believes it, that that he's doing something, I don't know, heroic or making the right choice here. But just a small point, Glenn, that other prisoner is not beaten and taken away. They kill that guy. I, okay, yeah. So that wasn't clear to me. Um, I had some. Con- I actually had some confusion about what was going on with the the prisoners here. There is a little bit of confusion because later on, like we see, just, we seem to see when later on the guards are beating Ash up, who who is this other guy in the prison cell that we haven't met yet? That it's like there seems to be a pattern of like beat them to the floor and then kick them in the face. Seems to be what the Klingons are doing, and that would lead me to believe that they kill them every time. But that's not consistent with what mud says about the beatings so so there is something confusing going on there but i'm pretty sure they kill this prisoner the reason that i'm bothering to spend this much time talking about this detail is i was paying i was hyper focused in this episode about how many people are dying and how violent this episode is and it was i i don't like it and i don't need it and i don't think it has a place um to this extent I don't think it serves anything and I don't want it in my Star Trek show. 
It is something of a theme of this episode, I think, but I am a little bit inclined to agree with you that it certainly was jarring uh, to me in a Star Trek episode. Uh, But we're going to leave the violence behind here for uh, at least one scene, and we're going to go back to the Spore Lab where Burnham and Dr. Kolber are trying to convince Stamets to stop using the tardigrade in the Spore Drive. And Stamets eventually comes around to their way of seeing the issue, but in the argument that he and Burnham have, he asks Burnham whether she wants to be right or whether she wants to fix the problem, which I thought was uh, a fantastic line. And I think it's a question that I wish more people uh, would ask themselves. I think, though, if more people asked it of themselves, they'd, they'd just realize that they want to be right. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we're going to solve more problems. <laughs> like, we're just going to have some more self aware people um, knowing that they just want to be right. So, there's one other thing that I want to point out here in this scene, Valerie, which is that Dr. Kolber is not the doctor. There is a chief medical officer of whom he is a subordinate and uh, whom he is going to go right now to assist with a tonsillectomy. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that. They name that person as chief medical officer? No, they don't. I don't think that person has a name yet. Uh, so again, we're, we're getting kind of all, the lower decks version of each character class here on Discovery in some ways. Right? That's really interesting. And I didn't, I hadn't picked up on that. I was focused on like the, the fun, the fun part where he's like, I'm going to go do like, a, what is it like an Andorian tonsillectomy or something like that. And I just thought that was really fun. You know, there's an Andorian on board somewhere we haven't met yet, but great catch Glenn, because yeah, so we're getting the, the lower decks version, uh, even of the doctor character here. We very quickly head back to the prison ship and back to brutality where Lorca finds another human prisoner. This is Lieutenant Ash Tyler, a Starfleet officer. He is a survivor of the Jaeger from the Battle at the Binary Stars. And when he tells Lorca this, Lorca does not believe his story because there's no way that anyone could survive Klingon torture for seven months. But Tyler has an explanation for this, and it is that the captain of the prison ship, uh, the Klingon captain of this prison ship, likes to have sex with him. I thought it was a really nice touch in this scene where Ash says that he was he was on the Jaeger, and Lorca responds by saying, oh, you were at the bottle of binaries. And Ash responds, oh, they named it because he doesn't know that this battle got a name or anything that's happened since then because he was taken prisoner right at the beginning of the war. And just how heavy that news must have been for for his character was really striking to me. I'm looking forward to getting to know this character more. And in this episode, he's kind of uh, something of an action hero, but I think we're going to get more more detail about him as as this goes on. At this moment, the two of them begin to plan an escape, but this is interrupted when a space lizard thing steals the food that they've been sharing. Mm, it's a space beetle. Oh, it's a beetle. Okay, excellent. Space it's beetle. Much more yes, space beetle thing steals their food, and this is Mud's pet, Stuart. <laughs> I forgot forgot that name. When you say it like that, it sounds so ridiculous. And uh, this this serves here to give Lorca an opportunity to challenge Mud's scruples. And Mud gives a really nice speech here, a really interesting speech about how Starfleet isn't as bright and shiny as it likes to think. 
As far as MUD's concerned, Starfleet caused this war by the very nature of their exploration, by the very nature, by the very fact that they like to stick their nose in other people's business. And he fully understands why the Klingons pushed back against this. And and even more, MUD warns Lorca that Starfleet cannot continue ignoring the little people at the bottom of the social pyramid. So this is uh, MUD here, you know, a scummy character, not being a good person, but, but giving voice nonetheless to a segment of society that we very rarely see in Star Trek, which is to say people who aren't in Starfleet. It's a fair criticism. And it's a fair criticism of the future shows, even shows like TNG, which are idealistic. You know, we think of them as like kind of the most moral, the most ethical version of the of the Star Trek universe that we know. But you know, they still totally violate the prime directive all the time, walking around, completely interfering, um, you know, drop in, drop out with probably a huge effect on the societies that they, they interact with and touch. And we don't get to see that, right? It's like cut away, cut to the next episode. But of course, they have an effect. And it's probably not always a, a good one or a fair one, which is why the prime directive is theoretically there to begin with. But um, I thought this was a very fair criticism. I'm glad it was raised. Um, you know, less trustworthy in the mouth of mud, but but fair nonetheless. Yeah, and this is an issue that actually is raised for us a little bit towards the end of Star Trek Enterprise when we see that there is a big uh, political party on Earth that doesn't want to have a federation, that doesn't want to have a Starfleet that's going out exploring. And they and they blame Starfleet for the Zindi War, right? They say that this, of course, inevitably is what's going to happen if you're r- flying around space telling everyone where we live. So it is, you know, we have seen before that there are, uh, that, that, that not everyone likes being a part of an interstellar society an interstellar state i think the point that you raised is really interesting as as a way to address how and why this series is so dark because i was i was discussing this uh with my dad actually you know theories on the internet which is basically that humans are have become a very peaceful society right unified earth everybody's happy we've eliminated poverty all those things and haven't gotten so good at the defense part because they've achieved peace. And then we have this Zindi war, which teaches us a little bit of a lesson. And But I think that like the general idea is that it's possible that every time Starfleet encounters some sort of war situation, they're kind of ill-prepared. Then they gear up. But when the war's over, they try to return back to a less militaristic way of being. And that maybe what we're seeing here with Discovery is just really the peak of the militarization of Star Trek. That's actually much the theme of Star Trek VI, uh, which we're seeing a lot of echoes of in Discovery so far. Back in the Spore Lab, Burnham, Tilly, and Stamets are trying to figure out how to run the drive without the tardigrade. And the thing is that the drive requires an animate co-pilot. It, it requires a living navigational computer. And so they're going to have to find a way to transfer the tardigrade's spore magic stuff to a creature that can volunteer to be a part of the drive, right? They have to, they have to find a way to to get a sentient creature who can willingly volunteer to for this job to also have the spore magic. Uh, and this is going to be something we're going to come back to in a later scene. So I think we can we can talk about it more uh, when we get there. So now we flash back right away to the prison ship where Lorca is being tortured by the Klingon captain. 
who is speaking English, and she is descended from spies. Oh, that was so cool. She's so cool. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and she's because she's descended from spies, she says that she finds language useful, and her armor is the same as Laurel's, and, and so I think, right, she must be a member of House Makai. She's one of these matriarchs, and it was awesome. She was a very cool character. Uh, she, not without her problems, but yes, learning that the matriarchs are also linguists, I'm really excited. The captain here is very handsy with Lorca and very creepy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> and she uses some of Lorca's own words from his conversation in the prison cell, uh, which is going to be important in just a moment. And then she tortures his eyes with a bright light. Bit of a rough watch. Yeah, I really I had trouble with this with the, with all the torture and the brutality in this episode. And this was another scene where I I had to look away. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it was like, you're left to imagine how bad it is. Um, and that's a different kind of bad than watching people get beaten to death. Lots of different kinds of problematic violence that were hard to watch in this episode that I just don't enjoy. And I know that these kinds of shows, shows with this kind of violence are very popular nowadays. Um, I don't really watch them, though, for that reason. I would rather put on something campy from the 80s or 90s or the original series or and have a little bit of fun. Um, I tend to steer away from these violent shows. So I think that's part of what's what's making this a little bit hard for me. This scene, though, in particular, is is actually something of a callback to the very famous Next Generation episode, Chain of Command, famous for Picard shouting, there are four lights, where this issue of lights are being used as part of his torture when he is taken prisoner, taken as a prisoner of war as well. That is when Picard is taken prisoner by the by the Cardassians, but I couldn't help but think about Picard and also him being a prisoner of the Borg and some of the other torture scenes um, that we do see that are just just not so explicit. It's torture. It's there, but it's not so in your face as the show is making it. Yeah, it's it is about kind of the the depiction of of the violence. It certainly is much more brutal here. But we are going to get just another another reprieve here when we get back to the discovery, which we learn has located Lorca, and Saru is ready to jump, but Stamets has taken the spore drive offline. Saru storms into the spore lab, where Burnham explains the situation. She says, humans might be compatible with a tardigrade DNA injection thing, uh, but they need more time. We know right away, somebody, right? The end of this episode has to be, somebody's getting in that spore drive. Yeah, that's right. This is Chekhov's tardigrade DNA injection thing. Someone's going to have to use it if it's brought up here. Uh, But in the moment, Saru is furious with Burnham, and... Burnham here tries to calm him down by saying something that's pretty complicated and harkens back to some of the things we were talking about as far back as episode one, Valerie. She says, your culture trains you to be on the heightened lookout for enemies. And this is not what Seru says about himself, right? Seru says that this is a physiological characteristic, and so I have to ask here, like, which is it, Burnham? Is it race or is it culture? Again, very reductive. Like, I found, I understand, Staru is not, I don't think he's captaining well. He's losing it and he's making some bad decisions. But I also don't think that Michael's reaction to him is good either. And 
it felt really reductive, like reducing to monocultures here. Because, you know, we learn in a couple scenes when Saru apologizes and does some reflecting uh, and becomes very self-aware that something more complicated and, for lack of a better term, like human is going on here. And, and I just mean, you know, the way we use that in conversation to mean, you know, like to err is human kind of a thing. That Saru was complicated and Sometimes he reacts poorly when he's angry or under stress. Yeah, but Michael is making it all about his his race um, in this scene. And it's reductive and problematic, I think. I don't really have a whole lot to say about it here in this episode, but I want to make sure that we're pointing it out, uh, that you and I are talking about it right now, Valerie, and that we're pointing it out to listeners because I think that we are going to, at some at some point, probably the mid-season break, want to want to have a bigger conversation about how Discovery is dealing with race and culture. And so we'll just make sure that we, we've ticked this one, we've got this one entered into the catalog of evidence uh, to be discussed when we get to that point. Yeah, interesting, because we haven't discussed Michael in her uh, human versus Vulcan um, characteristics in a while. So I expect that to circle back as well. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We're going to get we're going to get some more of that at some point, though, not in this episode. And this scene here ends with Seru ordering Stamets to get ready to jump. And then we switch back to the prison cell where Lorca knows that Mud is a snitch, uh, finds a transmitter on his space beetle. But Mud tries to shift the moral stain to Lorca by revealing some of Lorca's backstory. And uh, the story is this. Lorca's last ship, the USS Baran, was ambushed a month into the war, and Captain Lorca was the only survivor because he let his crew die. And Lorca doesn't dispute Mud here, but he does correct him. He says that he didn't let his crew die. He blew them up so that they wouldn't be tortured and executed on Kronos. I had an interesting reaction to this scene, right? Because I think what we're meant to feel is... I don't know, disgust with Lorca or some sort of quite negative emotion. But somehow the fact that Lorca takes ownership and and tells the full story makes it a little bit more tender. I want to think about this from a writing standpoint, Valerie, and this is this is kind of a hard thing to understand what's what's happening here. So I, we are you're right. We are meant to sympathize. We're meant to feel for Lorca here that he's had to make this difficult choice and it's something that haunts him and we're going to find out more about that later but it's hard to it's hard to really fully understand how we're supposed to feel about this situation because we don't really have enough details of this story at least this is how I responded to it I felt like I couldn't understand how it is that he survived and the rest of the crew didn't what is it that he was doing that kept him from also blowing up in whatever tactical situation was going on here. And so we don't know what types of choices that he made, right? I think it's pretty clear exactly what choices he made. He snuck away. Like he either he either got himself to a, you know, escape pod or more more like a shuttle and used some of the weapons capabilities on the shuttle to destroy the ship or he left some press self-destruct and ran away. I think this is an instance of cowardice, right? He abandoned his ship as its captain. That's what happened. I guess. I mean, that's certainly one possibility. That seems to be the most likely possibility. But that decision, Valerie, the if, if, he, if he set up the self-destruct on the ship and then went and stole off 
in uh, an escape pod on his own, he would be in prison right now. He would be in military prison right now. That's illegal. And so the fact that he's not, but that Admiral Cornwell tells uh, tells us, right, that people are judging him, but that Starfleet deemed that he hadn't hadn't done anything wrong suggests to me that that there's some of there's something else to the story. I suppose that's a fair point. Maybe he was off of the ship already for some reason when the ship was captured or in imminent danger. And you and now that I hear you say it, it sounds I guess more likely. I don't know. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle because I think it could end up in a place where Starfleet just decided he was useful enough. And if we're looking for parallels with Michael, here's another one. He did something that in a not in wartime would have ended his career. But in this particular moment, they saw the value of him and kept him around. I mean, I think that's also a possibility. And here's here's where I want to circle back to thinking about this from a writing standpoint, which is that to say that the scene is kind of undercut by the fact that we can have these multiple interpretations of this backstory and then and there and and so therefore we don't really quite get what we're supposed to feel or think about Lorca at this point, but that the writer is doing that intentionally because the writer has decided that that confusion is worth worth it to hold on to this reveal for some other dramatic moment. I disagree. I think that was a bad choice here, although I still like the scene. I think the stronger writing choice would have been to make this much clearer so that we would know how we're supposed to feel in this moment. But the show is is a lot about not telling you exactly how to feel and a lot about cliffhangers. So it fits in with what they're doing in general, right? I'm actually okay with uh, reading that decision as 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 wanting to wanting us to struggle with how to feel. I'm less okay about the cliffhangers. I think that's tends to be a cheap a cheap trick. And one way of reading the way that they recap things right in the beginning of every episode and kind of tie up all those loose ends is using this cheap trick over and over, right? Of like, cheap trick, oops, solved it. Next cheap trick. <laughs> um, that's another less generous way of looking at the same thing. Yeah, that's true. This is the first one where it's actually bothered me. Uh, but we can leave this behind, I think. And because uh, there's another interesting thing in this scene that I'd like to talk about. Actually, there are several. But the next one is that at this point, Mud says that confession is good for the soul. Too bad none of us have one anymore. What does he mean by that? No idea. Yeah. So I have some thoughts. One, I'm going to point out that soul is used two more times in this episode, uh, in, and, and it's always kind of put in bold, It's all or italics. It's always emphasized in the lines. I think I read this at this moment, not having heard the other two uses of the word soul. I got the impression that this is Mud making a comment on the future's atheism. Maybe. That feels extreme to me as a reading. So I know I just had, I said I had no idea, but I'll take some guesses. I think maybe the simplest answer here is we're at war. That's a that's a very good reading, Valerie. I like that. I will say my reading was affected by some knowledge that's external or some information that's external to the text, which is that there was a news article a few months before the release of Discovery that reported that the writers of Discovery were taking a hard line on uh, Roddenberry's vision of the future as being atheistic, as being without religion, and had even forbid the use of the word God on set. And so I was allowing that to affect my my reading of this line here. Uh, but I, I like your reading better. The problem with reading it that way for me is that 
if mud is saying, but nobody has one of those anymore, it kind of makes it sound like a lament. And I don't really think that mud would be lamenting that our society has lost its religious values. But, you know, maybe he was just being quippy. I think your reading of this is completely right. That doesn't seem like something Mud would say. Uh, that's not a not a sentiment Mud would have. And so I think your reading about about these three, everyone being in this, the three of them being in this prison cell because of bad choices they've made, perhaps, might be more like what he has in mind. I think that's a good reading, Valerie. And there's just two more little notes here I've got for this scene, Valerie. One is just to say that the USS Buran is named after the Soviet version of the space shuttle. So we're getting, again, some of this this drawing on Earth's multiculturalness, Earth's multicultural history here on the naming of Starfleet mm. vessels. And then the last note, and this is one I find really interesting here, is that is is about the name of the Klingon homeworld, which is given here. And Lorca says Kronos, but the captions give us Konos, which is to say uh, the kind of anglicization of the planet name is what Lorca says. And we've heard this before in Star Trek. Uh, but the captions actually have have the script or have him saying the Klingon pronunciation. I, I just wanted to point that out because I found it interesting. But I think that we also can move on at this point. And uh, our next scene, the Discovery jumps after Lorca. And, and the tardigrade goes into extreme cryobiosis and won't wake up. Seru is at wit's end with this, and he demands that Dr. Kolber forcibly awaken it so that once they have Lorca, they can use the spore drive once again to escape. But Dr. Kolber explains that neurological tests indicate that the tardigrade may be sentient, and so he will not torment the creature anymore. And Saru is aware of what he's asking Dr. Kolber to do, and he says that he will take full responsibility for the decision, but that he is willing to sacrifice the tardigrade for the 134 souls in his care. But Dr. Kolber will not be a party to murder. I really appreciated the doctor calling this murder here because I think that understanding that that's what they would be doing is hard to grasp when you see such a non-human looking character um, or such a non-humanoid looking character. So I really, really appreciated them calling it that. I also think that when Saru says, I take full responsibility for this, he doesn't. He's saying like, if something goes wrong, that's on me. But I don't think he's fully aware of what he's taking responsibility for. I think that he's not thinking about it because he's really, really stressy right now. Oh, I think that he is. I think that what he means is that I think that what I think that he's trying to answer some of Dr. Colbert's potential objections here uh, of saying like that if, you know, if, if we sacrifice the tardigrade and it is sentient, then Dr. Colbert wor is worried about the legal ramifications of that, or perhaps even like the social and cultural stigma uh, that will follow him. And Saru is saying, don't worry about that. Just follow my orders. You, you, you know, you can say you were just following orders. I will take responsibility for it. Obviously, that's that's morally wrong, right? The whole thing is morally wrong for sure. But I think I think Saru is a little more. I think Saru is more aware of it than than you think he is. I guess maybe what I'm trying to say, and you can still disagree, is that he's a he's aware of the facts, right? But he's like turned off the part of him that I think fully understands that he would be killing a creature, that he, that this would be murder. And so he understands, you know, this very like, one is worth it for 134. Do what I tell you. I'm stressed out. I'm mad. I get it. I know it's bad. We have to do it anyway. 
and that is true, but I think he's operating in this very, very logic place where he's distanced himself from the the true understanding of the emotion of what it is to to torture or murder this creature and isn't really able to access that kind of empathy or full understanding right now on that level. And in fact, we're going to see this when we get serious part of the epilogue that this is this is the arc of his character and the 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 word although you used very good words there valerie the best words uh the word that you you didn't use is the word that the ship's computer uses which is compassion and that's that is something that's absent from him right now faced with this same tough choice, Stamets agrees to carry out Saru's orders, and he and Dr. Colbert exchange a pretty heavy look with each other. I was expecting that to be a Stamets kind of saying, oh, don't worry, I'm going to sneak around this look, but it's really a more serious business look. It doesn't have any indication of, uh, of foul play or of uh, trickery that you might expect from a look like that in a typical scene. We're going to see the culmination of that in just a few scenes. But for now, we switch back to the prison ship where it is time for a daring escape. Tyler and Lorca overcome some guards who've come into the cell, and Lorca decides to leave Harry Mudd behind. Kind of a morally questionable decision, but Kirk does the same thing in the second Mudd episode. You have this mud character that is despicable and you know slimy and grimy um and who we want to fault for for not being very good of a human and then we see kirk and now Lorca respond to him with a complete lack of compassion almost as if the fact that mud is that way justifies being that way back to him which doesn't seem right morally or for the star trek universe but Kirk makes the same decision to leave him with 500 yelly, naggy wives forever on a planet with androids. Um, And here we're leaving him to torture. And it doesn't quite make um, ethical sense. I'm a little less bothered by this ethical choice than one that Lurk is going to another one that Lurk is going to make in this in this scene, because here I think that. Mud has shown himself to be something of a collaborator and therefore perhaps something of a of a of a tactical problem someone who couldn't be trusted on the raider someone who couldn't be trusted on discovery uh, when there is so much at stake but i think Lorca is definitely making questionable choices here and it, this is a questionable choice i don't know that it's the choice i would have made i'd like to think it's not the choice i would have made at any rate so at this point, they fight their way to a small Klingon fighter jet, which is called a Raider. And uh, we see in this firefight here, Valerie, the disintegration effect of the Klingon weapons, which I find very cool, but also very disturbing. It's it's brutal. Yeah, I was a little bit confused by it at first. It took me a second to figure out, but it's, um, wow. Yeah, and this weapon's about to make a kind of a big appearance here in the boss fight that they have to have with the Klingon captain before they can finish their escape. And here in this fight, Lorca fires at her and the shot ricochets off the wall and onto her face. And I think because it's hit the wall first, it's lost its full disintegration effect. Uh, and so it doesn't disintegrate her completely, but it does start to eat away at her face. And the pain is so intense that it incapacitates her, that she falls to the floor howling uh, and groaning in pain. And here is where I have to ask, why doesn't Lorca kill her? Or I guess capture her if we're thinking of a war thing. But if you're asking a moral question, 
Well, are you asking a tactical question or a moral question? Well, I was asking really the moral question. He's because he's killed all these other Klingons to facilitate their escape. So I think we can uh, assume that that this is this is the okay moral decision in this in the fighting here. And he, he's incapacitated her. I guess for me, yes. I mean, I, I don't need to couch it, Valerie. This to me seemed. Well, I read this scene here, this choice as a choice, a deliberate choice to torment her just as she tortured him, just as she tortured Ash and, and many others, uh, that he, this is vengeance for him. Is it possible that they just needed to get away real fast? It is. It is possible. Yeah. And I'd love to hear what listeners have to say about this issue. But I don't know, because he couldn't have, he could have just fired at her. It takes two seconds to shoot and doesn't, and you know, she's, she'll be dead instantly if he just shoots her. That's that's right. And and then to rob the Klingons of a spaceship captain in the midst of this war, I think, to me, would have been a decent strategic choice as well. Or, as you say, to to because she's incapacitated to take her prisoner might even have been a better choice. I think that the reason, again, that I didn't linger on that I wasn't picking up on what you're picking up on in this scene is that I was preoccupied with the violence and disturbed by it such that I wasn't thinking about much else. I just thought the scene was so gruesome that I wanted it to be over in my mind. For me, this was wrapped up in the violence. This was part of the the gruesomeness was this choice that to me seemed like deliberate torture of this person. And given that the que- that question of whether or not we should be tormenting the tardigrade or showing it compassion is the theme of what's going on on the discovery, I, I, I feel like we have to read that theme here on the prison ship as well. And I think that maybe the reason I'm not reading it that way, maybe the violence is just an excuse, is that the Tardigrade's kind of a sympathetic character and the Klingons aren't, especially this particular captain, right? You you don't think of them as equivalent, but you're right to point out that ultimately they are. Oh, well, that's a great catch, Valerie. I mean, if I'd like to think that that's a deliberate choice here that the writers have made, uh, a challenge to us to think about who and what we feel compassion for and to ask ourselves what the rules are. I think they've been doing that from the beginning, which is a little bit of where my, my sympathy for the, the purest Klingons came came through, <laughs> albeit problematically. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we could finish our we can finish up our excitement here. It's now time for a raider chase. Lorca is a pretty good pilot of Klingon fighter jets, but there are a lot of Klingons that have taken off in pursuit of him and Tyler. On board the Discovery, Seru uses his keen understanding of predators to recognize that one of the raiders is actually the prey here, and he beams Lorca and Tyler onto the ship. And Seru wants to jump immediately here, and when he asks Stamets if he was able to revive the tardigrade, Stamets cryptically replies that the Discovery is able to jump. There's one other thing in this scene that I want to uh, talk about, Valerie. It's just a little note here, which is that in the Raider, Lorca tells Tyler that his damaged eyes remind him of the pain that he chose. And and so I read that line to mean that Lorca is talking, he's talking here about his decision to blow up his crew and, and that he's intentionally foregoing medical treatment so that he can feel bad about a choice that he made, that, that it's a form of penance for him. I would agree. I, I read it exactly the same. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's very interesting. And it's, it's, it happens here very quickly, but I, I have to believe that we're going to get more of this as Lorca's character develops. And I'm, I'm eager for it. I'm very interested to find out more of his backstory and to, to come to terms with what it is that he, what, what, what he's really grappling with here, what he's wrestling with. Yeah, me as well. And this is where um, I thought, you know, them, we talked about this earlier that when the Admiral says to him, go get your damn eyes fixed. And he's like, Oh, I don't like going to the doctor. This was, you know, we find out what it really is comes back to us here in this final scene. Is it, it's his way of punishing himself. And perhaps speaking of punishing himself, I think that's a good transition into our next scene in the spore lab where we find Stamets unconscious in the navigation chamber after injecting himself with the tardigrade DNA thing and acting as the navigational computer. And he opens his eyes and asks, did we make it? And Saru says, yes. And Stamets cackles. And of course, Valerie, uh, this is the exact plot of Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. I think what we really learn from this scene is that I was right to be Team Stamets. Stamets has redeemed himself here. I have some more questions about about Stamets. But yes, this was a brave choice. This was a, the morally correct choice to sacrifice himself uh, for to save his crew. Though I, I know I just said this. I know I just said Team Stamets and I am Team Stamets. I, morally correct? I don't know. Because here's the thing. He didn't know it was going to work. And the consequences of it not working, right? They haven't tested this whole, oh, put the DNA in a human and then see if the human, blah, blah, blah. They have no idea. They have not tested this. And he just potentially sacrificed the entire ship, the entire crew, to see if this thing worked. Well, I think we're meant to understand that the Discovery is not going to be able to just warp away from these Klingon raiders that that they're too that because or that even if they might be able to warp away from these Klingon raiders they're too deep in Klingon territory not to be attacked later by potentially an entire fleet of Klingon vessels that their only chance of survival is to use the spore drive we might question the setup of that at all but i think that's what we're meant to understand and so stamets here the 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 choice is someone gets in that thing or we all die and stamets says i'm the one who it should be i can't ask anyone else to do this I guess I think it's a very interesting problem because, again, you don't know it's going to work. You could revive the tardigrade and know it would work, right? And so you're stuck between something that you know will safely get everyone out and something that you know will torture a creature that is not, you know, complicit. But it comes back to this one versus 134 question, right? Yes, well, I, I, I think. Are you presuming here, Valerie, that this is a this is a one chance thing? That if if Stamets injects himself with the tardigrade DNA and it doesn't work, that then they can't go wake up the tardigrade and use it. That it will break the drive somehow. No, what I'm saying is, remember what happened to the Glen? They you try to use the tardigrade and something goes wrong, and the entire like something goes wrong with the jump. Because they don't know what they're doing yet. They haven't fully tested the technology and everybody dies. What I'm saying is we don't know a human can take the place of a tardigrade. This is just a theory at this point. And the potential consequence of that is that the jump, something goes wrong with the jump. They end up in the wrong place and the entire crew gets mangled and warped and dies. Ah, yeah, you're right. I see. And that is then perhaps something more of a conundrum here. I'm, not, Yeah, I wonder how much... 
that's really at play here or if the the writers have kind of forgotten that that's even something that is at stake because i think they really just want it to be this choice of i sacrifice myself or we torture the tardigrade yeah i just think that they missed something that's what i'm yeah okay and i can uh and yes i can i can be in full agreement with with that and i think you're you're right to point that out but in any event it did work uh in this case and they are they have gotten out of danger the ship is out of danger And so now we can get a series of epilogues here. And the first comes when Seru visits Burnham's quarters. And he says to her that he's not afraid of her, but he is angry at her and jealous that she got to learn about command from Georgiou because he doesn't feel like he's done a very good job in his short stint as captain. Burnham gives him Georgiou's telescope, but Valerie, I couldn't tell if he actually takes it with him when he leaves. Did you notice? No, I didn't notice. And I also think... Oh, it's sweet. But at the same time, you know, Saru has come in and he said, you know, she liked you more and I'm jealous. You got more of the things and I'm jealous. And her reaction is, hey, she gave me her most prized possession. As in, reminder, reminder, she did like me more than you. But you have it. Right. But I don't I don't actually care about that. The thing you care about so much doesn't matter to me. So I'm just willing to give away the memento of it, the token of it. Yeah, it was... Uh, I mean, the scene does, it doesn't read that way on, on camera, but yeah, if you really think about, if you'd think about it, if you dissect it, that's, that's certainly how I would feel if I was Seru. Yeah. I was like, I don't want this physical reminder of the fact that I'm totally right, that they liked you more. And I like, to me, it was like, oh, I would have been like, oh, George, you didn't leave me anything. <laughs> like it would have made me so sad. Me as well. Uh, but Seru doesn't seem to feel that here and in, in some of this is actually kind of incidental because what Seru has actually come for is to tell Burnham that they have no claim on the tardigrade soul. Here's that word again. And he wants Burnham to save its life. And so in the next scene in the epilogue here, Tilly and Burnham are with the hibernating tardigrade. Tilly says a little prayer or something, maybe reads a poem before Burnham sends the tardigrade into space with some spores where it awakens and jumps away to freedom. Yeah, and this is a beautiful, a beautiful scene. A little cheesy, but beautiful. Burnham here mentions that, you know, she is, she's hoping that the thing that the tardigrade needs in order to come out of its hibernation is to be free again, that that is the source of its happiness is freedom. And of course, she herself is still a prisoner. And so we get, we see here more of this, this uh, metaphorical mirroring of Burnham and the tardigrade. I guess I was surprised that they let it go. I was surprised that 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 was acceptable. I think if Starfleet, you know, command higher than Saru finds out about this, they're not going to be very happy because to me, again, this do this on a human thing is still a little bit experimental and they want to be sure that they have this technology. But I think that it was the right thing to do. Well, that leads right into the next scene here in the epilogue where we find Seru in private canceling the protocol that is measuring his performance. And he says to himself, I know what I did. But Valerie, I don't actually know what he means by that. And um, I, one, one of the ways that I read this was that, that, that he knows that letting the tardigrade go was, is something he's going to get in trouble for. But I don't know if that's really what he meant. I don't think that's what he meant. I think that big picture, what he meant was, I know that compassion was the thing I was lacking. I think that I read it more as lacking compassion towards his crew as his biggest flaw. 
but I'm sure lacking compassion towards the creature was also part of it. But more than anything, I didn't like that they that, that we were left here to fill this in. I kind of wanted to hear the computer tell him what he did wrong. Oh, okay. So this is one of the things that I loved about the episode is that we have we have to fill these questions in this question and some of the others that we have to strive to answer them for ourselves that we're given that the show is continuing to work on inferences rather than to explicitly tell us the meaning of of these scenes. I got a lot of mileage last night certainly out of out of uh, thinking about all of these questions while I was, you know, drifting off to sleep. I think that in general I agree with you and historically on the podcast here I have agreed with you. Maybe just my curiosity took over. This one was harder for me to solve on my own. I just wanted I wanted to hear the computer say it. That's fair. I think this might have been a moment where it might have been nice to have had the word compassion actually used in the scene to make it clear that this is a callback to to that and that Yes, Seru exhibited many traits that Kirk has, that Archer has, that Georgiou has, but uh, but the thing that he doesn't exhibit is compassion. You know, it's kind of the thing I thought he would be not lacking, like that he would have. So this was a surprising surprising turn in Saru's character for me and, and a little bit of how I said, you know, he used to be a very sympathetic character in my eyes and a little bit less so in this episode because I kind of thought he was like the nice one. And he doesn't come off that way. And I think his fear gets in the way of him being the nice one is what we're meant to see here. All right. Well, we have uh, one final scene. This is kind of the epilogue of the epilogue, if you will, Valerie, where we see Stamets and Dr. Colbert brushing their teeth in their quarters. And there were some hints in this episode that they are in a relationship, but I, I was still excited to see it kind of revealed here very casually. They got me. They got me right at the end. If there's, for all of the flaws of this episode, I I will forget them all because this scene made me so happy. Just overwhelmed with tenderness and joy. I was so excited and I didn't see it coming. I wasn't picking up on those clues, which is usually how I operate. <laughs> you, you see a little bit more than I do. And I mean, I think it should be pointed out that one other thing that we learn in this scene is about how teeth brushing works in the future, which I have some questions about. (laughs) Wasn't super clear to me. But oh my gosh, are they just my new favorite people? I loved them both separately as characters. I love them together. I love their love. They make me really happy. I think they're really cute. And I am so glad to see a same-sex couple on a Star Trek show. And ugh, it's great. Yeah, they have great chemistry together in this scene but also the entire episode and i hadn't picked up on the clues either it's only seeing the scene uh you can go back and reread all of their arguments (laughs) uh, all of their scenes together previously in the episode with this other dimension and you can see where the actors are playing the whole time the actors know what they're up to but uh the writers have done a good job of kind of hiding it and so it was it was it's really brilliant and and they did such a phenomenal job of casting these these two actors in these roles together. I also have to say, Valerie, they have really awesome burgundy pajamas with that Starfleet logo on them. Oh my God, I I was going to say the exact same thing. (laughs) I want them. If if that's not something I can buy, I'm going to be very upset and very disappointed. Pajamas are amazing. I hope somebody is already on top of making these. They're they're kind of some of the best pajamas I've ever seen just flat out. I really want them. But more important than teeth brushing and and beautiful burgundy pajamas is just again, you know, it's been a, one episode or two since I've pointed out just the wonderful diversity in casting here, which we see we see here through like a diversity of of love, but also a 
a biracial same-sex couple. Wilson Cruz, the actor that plays the doctor, is of Puerto Rican descent, and it's just it's just beautiful. It's really it's really great to see, and these actors are so good. I hope that yeah, I hope that we we haven't seen much of the doctor character until this episode, and we haven't seen him doing anything on his own. We haven't seen a sort of doctor storyline, even kind of like a C plot or a D plot really with just the the doctor. So I hope that we start to see that character developed on his own. But of course, I also hope we get to see more of these characters together because they're really great. All right. Well, when they're done brushing their teeth, they walk away from the mirror, but the camera moves around to focus on their mirror to reveal Stamets's evil looking, but goatee-less reflection staring back at us from the other side of the mirror. I'd like to point out he's also not wearing a waist sash, which is uh, <laughs> a sure sign in the Star Trek universe that you have become evil in addition to the goatee. Um, yeah, this was really cool. And I actually watched it about like four times in a row because it was so subtle to the point that a few people that I was speaking with today didn't notice it. And I had to point it out to them. The way that they did it that that I think tricked people or that was really subtle, but also really cool was that first the doctor walks away in the in the before we're evil, the doctor walks away from the bathroom, then Stamets looks at himself in the mirror for a second, and turns and walks away. Then the camera flips around, then that scene happens again, Stamets looks at himself in the mirror, and then turns and walks away. I think the the clue is that the stare the second time is a bit longer. It's got a little bit of an evil smirk, but let's be honest, that's kind of what Stamets' face is like, is a little bit of an evil smirk quality to it. He's a good choice for for an introduction to evil character, um, alternate universe people. And I think his eyes were a little bit blacker, but maybe I'm just making that up. You're right, actually, that that, uh, that actor's the actor has resting evil face, and so they kind of <laughs> had to... a little they, smarmy. Yeah, they had to punch it up a little bit there with uh, with some CGI black eyes or something like that. I have lots of questions about this, of course, but one question in particular that I have, Valerie, is do you think that we are... Does this mean that the next episode we're getting is going to be a Mirror Universe episode, or is this something they're teasing for further down the line? That's a really good question, Glenn, but I think that before I answer it, why don't you just very briefly introduce uh, any newcomers to what the Mirror Universe is, now that we've thrown that term around a couple times? Ah, yes, fantastic idea. So the Mirror Universe stems from an original series episode called Mirror Mirror, which posits a parallel dimension in which our cast members exist, except that they are evil. And it's not just that they are evil, it's that everything is evil, everything is backwards. Everything is a, a mirror reflection of of the real Star Trek universe. Famously, we know in this universe that, that people are evil because, as Valerie says, they have sashes or because they have goatees. And, and most famously, it's Spock with the goatee. This was something that was, uh, just, it was just one episode in the original series and was ignored by the other franchises until Deep Space Nine did several episodes in the mirror universe. And then Star Trek Enterprise did a two-part, very excellent episode in the Mirror Universe as well. Uh, And so I'd be really excited to see what Discovery's Mirror Universe is going to be. Maybe everybody's nice. Does it work that way? I haven't watched the Mirror episodes in a while. Like, are the evil, are Romulans super nice in the Mirror Universe? Or is it just like everyone's evil? I think it's just that everyone is is evil. Yeah, it's a bad place. You don't want to live there. 
I kind of want, now this isn't, I'm not going to get this, but I want like a mirror universe discovery episode where like everyone in Starfleet is evil and the Klingons are super nice. And also it's a musical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're five episodes in, we deserve a musical episode. We've waited long enough. (laughs) But But so now that we're a little bit caught up on that, I'm sure we'll get into it more if a mirror universe episode does happen. Yeah, I'm very excited to see the mirror universe. Mirror Mirror is a fan favorite. It's certainly one of mine. Even people who dislike Enterprise will will at least admit that the Mirror Universe episodes were pretty good. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, I'd love to see it next week, but I'll take it whenever they're going to give it to us. But I think it's time for you to do something a little bit evil yourself because we have to play Smooch, Mary Kill. Yeah, it is kind of evil because the last time I played this game, every character I chose died in the next episode. So <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about it. It's no pressure. Let's hold off on the being evil for now, and let's start with the smooching. Who are you going to smooch this week? This one felt really easy, but I am 100% picking Ensign. I don't know, Lieutenant. I'm not sure of her rank or her first name, um, but her last name is Oseikun. She gets a a brief uh, name in this episode. She is a gorgeously striking black helmsman. I don't know. I don't know what she does on the bridge. I can't remember. Tactical officer? <laughs> yeah, it's not clear. Saru says her name and I think gives her some instructions. But he was, you know, there was a list there, a litany that he was going through when he was doing that. But yeah, she's she's got real cool hair. She has really cool hair, shaved on the sides a bit, and just really striking, like bone structure, which is not what we thought this Star Trek podcast would end up being about. But here we are. <laughs> well, uh, but I think this, of course, says something. We keep saying this every time we play the game that our options are kind of limited because these characters aren't getting uh, fleshed out for us yet. And of course, every time I mention that, I also keep saying, I hope they will at some point, because like, I, I, I need to know what is on Kayla's face. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to you're going to have to wait, I think, for that. Or maybe we'll never know. Maybe they're just random background bridge people. Uh, it, it does seem that they're slow to build up more characters. And I have to be honest with the rate at which they are killing people. I'm a little bit afraid to get to know a character because it kind of seems like Game of Thrones style. The second you like someone, they're going to be killed off. So so I, I don't quite know what's going on with that, but I, I would like it. I would like the, these people to, to develop further. All right. Well, now that we know who you're going to smooch, how about you tell us who you're going to marry? This was really hard. Okay. I put a lot of thought into this decision. My understanding is that people are supposed to. Um, yeah, I think that's how it works. So I, I will say I gave some serious consideration to marrying the tardigrade. I'm not sure it can consent, though. I think that's I think that's something we've established is that it's not able to consent to a litany of things, including medical procedures and probably also marriage. <laughs> I mean, but we just don't know how to communicate with it yet. You know, like if we could figure out, a, I'm just saying, like, talk about, you know, a partner that can take you places. That's true. If you like to travel, the tardigrade might be the best <laughs> partner for you. Right. And then it's, it's a hobby I enjoy. So, you know, really it would open my eyes to new things. It's basically the the uh, the whole new world song in Aladdin lived out through my partnership with the tardigrade. So but yes, you're right. There's a there's a lot of good reasons that maybe the tardigrade's not ready for this step yet. So so yeah, I don't know if this is going to surprise you, Glenn, but I'm gonna marry Stamets. Okay. I mean, I think I've seen this coming. I mean, I know he has a boyfriend um, and that, you know, I thought about killing his boyfriend because he's kind of in the way. Oh, that would have been Mirror Universe Valerie <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that would have been evil. Um, but I just I really I really enjoy him. 
I guess the evil part of him has been separated off now. So if we can get rid of that guy. Other positive things in Stamets' favor, he's good at reading nonverbal cues and he brushes his teeth. <laughs> All right. So final question here, Valerie. Who are you going to kill? Okay. So I also gave this a lot of thought. I feel I was a little fresher with Saru, but I'm going to give him some time. The obvious answer, I think, is to kill Mud. But I'm not sure I have that power because he still appears in the original series 10 years later. So actually, and I kind of, you know, gave it away a second ago, I'm going to kill evil Stamets. <laughs> I'm going to marry good Stamets and kill evil Stamets. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Excellent. Well, with that business taken care of, Valerie, I think that's going to do it for this episode. But we'll be back next week. And until then, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think of Lorca's backstory or if there's anything that we missed. And also, if you have some time, let me know if you think the love triangle between myself, Stamets, and the Doctor is going to work out. But until then, and while you're putting thought into it, stay spacey.